1: All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we're going to be talking about something that is life life or death, really, literally, for you and those who you love. We're talking today about what the Supreme Court isn't telling you and what you need to know before it's too late. If you were one of the people who were jumping up and down with glee at the passage of the health care reform bill, surely you must not have realized that you've just given up control of your health and the length of your days to government. Most of us are too busy to read the thousands of pages in the health reform bill, so Thank goodness for people like today's guest, Catherine Cirks. She's the co-founder and chair of the Doctor Patient Medical Association, and she's going to translate what the passage of this bill really means for you and your family. And I'll give you a little clue: be afraid, be very afraid, but don't just be afraid. I'm not. Uh, today's show isn't just to frighten you, but it's certainly to wake you up. And to um, urge you to get involved before before it's too late. So, Catherine, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I
3: I want to bring word from the doctors in case people don't get it. I don't want people listening to the AMA in case you've just seen their statement about how wonderful and peachy the uh, the Supreme Court decision and the. Uh, 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 the PPACA, as we call it, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, is. Um, just, I would like to start out by saying the AMA has very, very low representation of physicians in the country. So, uh, doctors are kind of, kind of angry about this, and that's a nonpartisan um, sucking sound that we're hearing from doctors.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly want to talk about that. It, it, I mean, I remember being in medical school and thinking that uh, the AMA was the uh, end all, uh, be all, and end all, and it's just such a betrayal to doctors. It's incredible. So we'll talk about that. But before we get into that, um, I think it's important to give um, my listeners a little background on you. And I'm actually interested too. I mean, we've been on various calls together, and I know that you you know more about this bill than just about anybody, and you've certainly been fighting um, for patients and doctors, uh, just about uh, better than anyone I know. And so I'm really curious, and, and I'm sure my listeners want to know, too, Where, how did you get here? I mean, what you've been doing this for years, and what has been the driving force behind all of your dedication?
3: Well, I'm, I probably started out a lot like most of the people who are listening, and that is that, you know, I was a... Um, uh, you know, a, a, a de facto idiot on a lot of healthcare policy and, and healthcare insurance and things like that. What I did, I'll tell you to be quite honest. I was a television reporter and producer, and and in a past life, a, a talk radio show producer. And you have a wide bit of knowledge, but it's not very deep. Uh, but when I when I went into doing media training, I started getting people who were. Who were p- politicians, and I realized that not only did they need help on on how to say things, but what to say. That they were stumbling around, and and uh, you know, you kind of pull the curtain back, and sometimes there's not a whole lot there. Uh, one of the people that came to me about 20 years ago was a doctor in Seattle who wanted to stop the version of Hillary care that was coming into um, this Washington state. And we had a, our version of the Affordable Care Act. And so I started doing work with the Doctors Group, which was the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. And for 16, 17 years represented them doing policy work and public affairs and started reading bills and looking at things that I never thought I'd be waiting through. So that's kind of how it all came about. And then I realized, I realized that this wasn't just, this wasn't just a client, that this was about my life. As you very, very Plainly and eloquently said at the same time in your introduction, this is about our life. How much, what else affects us more deeply and in, in the quality of our life and, and the, all the aspects of our life than our relationship with our physicians and our health. We have personal relationships with, with our clergy and our family and our doctors. And I realized how much the government and, and now really the insurance companies and the third parties are getting between me and my doctor, and so it's become a a cause. Now, one of the things I felt very strongly about was, too, is that in the last few years, I've seen a real political wedge between doctors and patients, as though what's good for patients must be bad for doctors, Mm -hmm. and that if it's good for doctors, that it must be bad for patients. And if people were here in Washington, D.C., you would realize that that is intentional, that's used as a political wedge mm. to try to keep the group separated, you know, separate, conquer and divide. And, and I decided in, in 2009 I had been kind of twining around this idea about doctors and patients needed to work together. And so it, a little bit ago last year I got Serious about it, and started Doctor-Patient Medical Association, and we are the only association in the country that's bringing doctors and and patients into one group to say, "Hey, our interest is the same. We're trying to get you guys out of our relationship, so let's work together."
2: Hmm. Wow, that's um, that's a really interesting path. I mean, it's almost you sometimes look back and think um, that it wasn't a coincidence that that sort of the universe or fate or whatever you want to call it had this in store for you when they uh, made the uh, original doctors your clients? I guess so because I've taken my I, – I, I almost feel that
3: in a way – uh, you know, I, I represent both patients and doctors. I like to think that I can speak for both. Um, I can go out and say things to the public that doctors wouldn't say. I talk, talk to the public about, folks, and I'll, I'll start right now, mm-hmm. you do not know, people do not realize what you as physicians go through these days. They have no idea when they see, they think doctors make a lot of money, they think you're all doing very well. They don't realize that you're getting paid sometimes as little as 13 $15 for office visits. How much time you put in that's uncompensated, you know, and that's not necessarily a real popular message sometimes, and doctors, many doctors are still they're still very humble and, and, and involved in service and don't want to go out. They don't want to make it seem like they're whining to patients, so they don't talk about these things with their patients, but I can talk about that to patients and kind of give them a, a dose of reality. On the other hand, I feel comfortable enough talking to the doctors and, and, and bringing them the patient's message as well, and then... Of course, I'm out screaming it from the rooftops up on Capitol Hill, talking to members of Congress, state legislators, as well as the media and anybody who will listen at this point because I think it's it's so important. You know, I when it comes to the health of your family, when it comes to if you're a mother with a sick child, you don't care what political party someone is from. We just need to try to find some solutions.
2: Yes, I was actually just thinking about that before uh the show today, I was thinking about how when you're lying in a hospital bed you 're not going to really care um, about what party the people voted for who are supposed to be taking care of you I mean you just want to have good care or certainly for your family members and so on it's not, it's really i mean that's that's part of the problem today uh, I know you you talk about how it's important not to call it Obamacare and certainly that's you know it's become a quick um, it's easier to say Obamacare than to say P. Paco or the whole, you know, the whole title of the bill. But it is unfortunate that the whole thing has become so politicized. Today, it's so funny. I was reading um, uh, on the internet this morning in the news. I read a headline: um, Sarah Palin applauds the health care reform bill, or something like that. Or was jumping for joy about the healthcare reform bill passing or something and I thought what did I know oh. I read it like three times did I read this wrong and it turns out that the story is that she was thrilled that it passed the supreme court because um because she thinks that that will be the end of obama well,
3: you know, that's that's kinda of getting in the political weeds. I know that I've been I've been kind of joking that we've had an awful lot of amateur psychiatrists this week, Doctor, trying to get into the head of of Chief Justice John Roberts. Mm. And to be honest, I don't even care. I don't care what his what his thoughts are. I don't care why he did what he did. The bottom line is that we've been having the incorrect discussion about health care in this country. And know if we we need to move forward somehow, but we keep talking about coverage and we keep talking about enrollment when we talk about people who are uninsured it 's not that they 're uninsured, we need to have the conversation about access to medical care, and that 's what 's so so much more important, and that 's also why so many um, progressives and folks to the to the left also oppose this bill is because of the insurance mandate, the individual insurance mandate, and being forced to buy a product from a private sector uh, um, provider employ- and, and uh, provider of a, of a service that, that they don't want to do it either. So whether you use language that says it's unconstitutional or it's serving the corporate interest,
2: um, people are against it on both sides. Yes, actually, that's right. You can actually, regardless of which side you're on, you can find things to be. We can find things wrong with it. I mean, why don't we start dispelling some of the myths? Because um, I mean, I think that's the most important thing. Try because, as I said at the beginning, no one, and probably not, not including most of the congressmen, who one would hope the Supreme Court justices read the bill, but but I don't know, and. Um, And certainly, I doubt all members of Congress did. And there are some really nefarious, sneaky, (laughs) dangerous things inside this bill that just got passed. So why don't we start exposing some of that? Sure. (laughs) Where where should we start? (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) Where
3: should we start? The the first thing that I think that... That, well, let's, let's, t- let's talk about the individual mandate again for just a moment, and because that, since that is the, the centerpiece. um... whether you oppose, don't oppose, whatever you think of it, let's talk about what it actually does. It requires people to, to buy insurance, and not just insurance from a free market, but insurance that the federal government deems acceptable. So that also means that the federal government can keep raising the requirements higher and higher. So we get to the point where you can't even buy basic insurance anymore. Now, most people say, why would you want basic insurance? Because it costs less that's a good reason i'm somebody i always joke and say i'm an insurance hostage i can't when i try to talk to my senator who is patty murray from washington state um... who really leans towards a single-payer system and i start talking about how i'm held hostage by the insurance companies and i can just see that her staffers you know salivating because they think Ooh, we've got a live one and i explain that i want less insurance than i than i'm have to buy in washington state and i can't buy it I would like to actually insure my risk. Well, when this bill goes into effect and the federal government gets to decide what thresholds those insurance policies need to meet, I'm going to be paying for a lot of things that I don't need. I can tell you right now, I do not need maternity (laughs) benefits. I'm not going to need maternity benefits, and yet I will be paying for those. So that's one of the problems with it. Um, And, again, it's and the other problem with it, of course, is that It's about insurance, which leads us to the issue of where doctors are coming in on this. Having insurance is not the same thing as going to the doctor and getting care. And if there's anybody who's ever fought an insurance company to cover a service, or but unfortunately most people are shielded from a lot of that process, the doctors are slugging it out and their offices are slugging it out trying to get the payment. So people don't even know how hard it is to get payment. Uh, sometimes six six months one hundred and eighty days for payment to yes. come through, and yes. so it's that doesn't again being insured doesn't actually mean that you 're going to get medical care
2: yes, yes, and that's something that we'll expound upon absolutely that 's kind of one of the cornerstones of this whole problem. Everyone people who are excited about it think oh i 'm going to get all this affordable care when they they 've forgot to ask the doctors if they're going to be providing it. Um, we need to take a break. My guest is Katherine Serks. She's the co-founder and chair of the Doctor Patient Medical Association. And we are um, pulling back the curtain of this bill that just passed the Supreme Court and telling you what is really in store for you. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Bacilli, Radio to Thrive By
1: Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines Having trouble relaxing?
2: and welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, taking back the curtain, pulling back the curtain, and telling you what the Supreme Court isn't telling you, and what you need to know before it's too late. My guest is Katherine Serks. She's the co-founder and chair of the Doctor-Patient Medical Association, and as you've just heard, she is um, has been working in this field passionately, dedicated in a dedicated manner uh, for years. And um, trying to bring patients and doctors together, because in fact we all want the same thing, which is to provide and to receive good medical care, the best in the world. So, Catherine, um, we uh, just—I know you wanted to follow up what we were just talking about. So go ahead. Well, we were talking about some of the some
3: of the, the the problems that that are in the in the bill and what that means for for moving forward um we talked about the individual mandate some of the things that that are still that are in there that people may or may not heard of is the independent payment advisory board and the reason that this is critical is because this is an unelected politically appointed board that's going to be making decisions about payment rates uh for doctors in medicare and interestingly enough the way that the rules are written for membership on this board uh no working doctor in clinical practice would would qualify to be a member of the board so that means we're going to have administrators and or academics who are making these decisions so
2: you know this uh, is be so amazing yeah. because you would think um, i mean of course you would want doc- real doctors you know practicing doctors um, to who are on the front lines to be able to make these clinical decisions. Right. I mean that to me, that's the scariest part of this whole thing. Well, it's backdoor some...
3: rationing is what is really what it is. It's a backdoor rationing because when yes.
2: when when you are just de-
3: determining the payments, um, you you are really setting up whether something is going to be done or not. And I always use the example: I have a ninety-year-old father who had quintuple. Um, cabbage um, heart bypass surgery five years ago and in a system where if you just look at him on paper an 85 year old is not going to be okay for that kind of surgery but my father is very active, works out um, still was going out on disasters for FEMA as a BEMA reservist, um, he's not you know sitting at home watching TV. So that's that's why that doesn't work. We all want that individualized care. These are the types of things. This this iPad and this micromanagement. The other things that are in there that I think are particularly alarming to physicians. Now remember, when I talk about being alarming for physicians, patients need to pay attention because it's all about how it translates to you as patients and your care. So when doctors are alarmed about things like accountable care organizations that are supposed cost-cutting organizations, but it's really just a new way to spell HMO. And I think the public was pretty clear about 10 years ago that we had pretty much had it with most of the HMOs and their capitation and just trying to get care out of them um, when they didn't want to give up the money and their controlling of the doctors. So they're kind of bringing that back around. Other things in there are pay for performance. Now, again, everything is under the heading of cost-cutting. If we can be more efficient, we can cut costs, which means that we can get care to more people. And that's a wonderful idea on paper until you actually try to do it. I was just sitting with a doctor for an hour and a half today, a, a pediatric nephrologist, and she was in tears today telling me about what she goes through fighting to have time with her patients and and she's told she's not efficient enough, constantly told mm-hmm. at the hospital she's not efficient enough because she's spending too much time. But what we, that means is pay for performance is doctors are paid based essentially on outcomes, and that's coupled with cookbook medicine, which means that doctors have to go through a protocol, which is they have to do A and then B and then C before they can do D. Well, sometimes, and Dr. Harris, I know we have a doctor waiting in the wings to talk to us, the doctors know sometimes you could skip right to, from A to D on a patient, and instead of making that patient have to wait, to get a certain treatment or something, and other patients that need to go through the steps, and sometimes the steps take longer. Cookbook medicine doesn't work for the real patient, the human being who is different from every other patient standing in front of them. And also in terms of the pay for performance and outcomes, that's not real encouraging for doctors to take the sickest and the most difficult and Hmm. the most time-intensive cases.
2: Yes. It reminds me somehow, I'm, I'm getting an image as you're describing this now, of the Lucy, I Love Lucy show where she and Ethel were on the assembly line, you know, try, stuffing chocolates in their mouth. Well, <laughs> and and, and the, the doctor I was speaking with today said exactly that. She, <laughs>
3: she's told that, she's basically told that it's not a problem, in, that the patient doesn't have a
2: problem in your specialty, move on. Mm-hmm. And send well, them let's off. Go to, let's go to Dr. Adam Harris. He is in uh, San Antonio, Texas. He specializes in revision, minimally invasive, and outpatient replacement of the hip and knee. Welcome to the show, Dr. Harris.
5: Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here.
2: Uh,
3: well, I just like... us... Go ahead. Uh, I'm going to pipe in here because I do know Dr. Harris. And one of the things, Dr. Harris is one of the doctors who has kind of taken things into his own hands, which is that he is trying to create what we call a patient-doctor direct practice where the doctor and patient are working directly together and, and the patient pays the doctor and then files his own insurance claim or Medicare claim or he privately contracts with, or I, let me take that back, privately contracts with the Medicare patients. But what that means is that in these types of practices, um, he's answering to his patients instead of to the insurance companies because it's Mm -hmm. the patients who are contracting with him. Isn't that right, Dr. Harris? Absolutely. Uh, One other comment on the
5: pay pay for performance, it's not so much the actual outcome. If indeed the doctors got rewarded for a better outcome for the patient, that would be reasonable. What they're paying for is compliance with guidelines. And many of these thought. guidelines are owned and operated by big pharma or, or industry in some way, and some of them are blatantly dishonest. Uh, for example, the uh, CMS has recently adopted the American College of Chest Physicians' eighth edition guidelines. Now, the ninth edition have already been released. The ninth edition are good and straightforward recommendations. The eighth edition, at least in my own opinion, are very highly influenced by drug companies and are contrary to good patient care. So if you apply the 8th guidelines, even if you have complications, that's rewarded. If you apply the ninth edition instead, which is, runs counter to the 8th edition, and that's better outcomes for the patient, it, it's, it's not fulfilling the government requirements. Yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it's really contrary to good patient care in many regards.
3: And that is the cookbook that I was referring to, that exactly. you, you, you're told step by step by step and you can't skip steps, you can't do them in a different order because you're, you need to accept the protocol that they're micromanaging um, in, into the physician's offices.
5: Well, well there's one, one step further, and this is really the, the main point that I was going to call to talk about, is that in the bill, the Secretary of Health and Human S- uh, Services is given enormous power and the Secretary of Health and Human Services can decide what guidelines, how to measure them, how to apply them, and on and on and on. But at the end of all of these paragraphs, it occurs 11 times in the document that I've been able to find, is the comment that the decision of the Secretary of Health and Human Services is not subject to administrative or judicial review. So you know, if you believe it's wrong, sorry. Already, the decision's already been made. Did the doctor comply with the guidelines? Don't have it. Can't, if you think yes and the secretary thinks no, sorry, you're out of luck. (laughs) And and so this sort of power being given to an individual, uh, is is really unprecedented. And, And in many other cases, the Supreme Court has struck down the concept of anything being beyond administrative and judicial review. I, and mean, the, uh, and and they, I just
2: want to uh, underline that because essentially what this is, I mean, I, it's so hard to believe, you know, because essentially what this is saying is that the government, whoever appoints the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Secretary, um, gets to determine whether you live or die. I mean, we are no longer in a de- democratic uh, society or a society where we have, you know, the, the uh, all the rights that were that we're supposed to have, um, but rather that, I mean, this has made all of us, in a sense, slaves or totally dominated by the government, the person who appoints, you know, the, well, the, presumably the president, whoever appoints this health and human services person, which is, which is just, I mean, I don't think people can, have grasped exactly, well, first of all, I don't think people know the the part that you're pointing out, for the most part, and and if they do have have heard some idea about it, they don't grasp exactly what this means.
3: Well, it's interesting too because there's some of that same type of language. Um, there's very little. Uh, let me put it this way: there's a very arduous uh, congressional oversight over the um, independent payment advisory board as well and mm-hmm. here's you know this is very typical legislative language It the law actually prevents the board from recommendations to quote ration health care but then it never actually defines what rationing is mm-hmm. and so it's of course it's my contention that um if you if you're paying you know, if you're if you're paying ten dollars um, for a gallbladder surgery, then you're rationing. You have de facto rationing. Mhm. So all, the, all, uh, all of
5: this. Yeah. You and know, it, it, the uh, on this board on the current IPAB is a physician who is the brother of Rahm Emanuel, uh, who has made it very clear that he believes that physicians take the Hippocratic oath too seriously, they should be concerned with the greater good now i I really wish I were making this up, but it it 's out there and it 's accurate uh, so that it sounds very much like brave new worlds, and you know that 's not the America that that uh, i hoped in which I hope to raise my kids.
3: There's a debate in, in in approaches to healthcare. Just to explain why that why what Dr. Harris said is so important. There's a debate between the people who work toil in the fields of healthcare policy, and that is 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 wait, definition the definition the of greater good, and we can explain that when we come back. Yes, yes. I'm not sure if you heard the
2: music for the for signaling. We have to take another break, but we do. Um, we're talking here about the Supreme Court decision, healthcare, your life and death, um, which has been taken out of your hands. Um, my guest is Katherine Sirk. She's the co-founder and chair of the Doctor-Patient Medical Association. And also we have been joined by Dr. Adam Harris, um, a, a specialist in hip and knee surgery in uh, San Antonio, Texas. So when we come back, we'll talk more about this. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
4: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And
2: welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman talking about life and death matters with you today, what the Supreme Court hasn't talked to you about, isn't telling you, and what you need to know before it's too late. My guest is Katherine Serks. She's the co-founder and chair of the Doctor-Patient Medical Association, and we're talking about... Um, about brave new world medicine, um when you walk into your doctor's office, I want to leave you with this image today um, of of I, uh, i'm sure most of you have seen the I love Lucy episode where Lucy and Ethel are stuffing chocolates in their mouth because they're on an assembly line, and they don't want to get fired, and so uh they can't go as fast as the assembly line you know is 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 trying to make them go, and so they're just uh Stuffing themselves to try to have all the chocolates go along and not be fired, and essentially that's what your doctors are having to do, uh, and will have to do more of because of the new bill that's coming. And and um. And, well, what do- and, and what
3: Doctor Harris was 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 ta- was also alluding was talking about is this pub this idea of the public good, yeah. and the problem is that this tension in in public health is that we should all be concerned about the public good rather than our individual health or the individual care of our family or our children. And so that means that, let's talk back to my dad, that means that an 85-year-old man should be willing uh, to not use up resources for the public good that could go to a child or someone else. So that's why that is so important, and as Dr. Harris pointed out, that is not the foundation of American individualism, and that's why so many people find that offensive. I'd also point out that Rahm Emanuel's brother and the others on the Independent Payment Advisory Board are making more than most of the average family physicians uh, make in in cities in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida. He's making... uh, I think it's a hundred and sixty-five thousand and change, and most doctors aren't doing that well anymore. And we just did a survey uh, at at doctorsandpatients.org. There's some information there, and you know, not that I'm trying to go out and and talk about old poor doctors, but it's it doctors' money has gone down, and they they have to see more patients to keep the level of, of, um, re- of payments up. And the reason that is, is let me explain that. A doctor may bill $125 for a service. That doesn't mean a doctor gets paid $125 for a service. He may only get paid 28 or $30 by the insurance company for that service. So two out of three doctors now tell us that they are either in the red or just squeaking by and that's why we're so concerned right now about the wholesale bailout of doctors as they look at all of these things that are coming down the pipe with the implementation of this of the health care bill and uh, the law now they are they are ready to jump out of the system well if the doctors leave if Elvis leaves the building, that leaves us with no doctors to take care of us. And it doesn't yes. matter whether you have a piece of paper that says you're insured or you have a piece of paper that says you're enrolled in Medicaid. If you can't find a doctor to treat you, then it's not going to do us any good.
2: Yes, and I, you, you just said something that reminded me. One of the things we absolutely have to uh, talk about is um, how this law, I mean, you know, you're right, it's not a bill anymore. It's not, I guess it's a law. Um, how, in fact, it it doesn't apply to the people who made the laws. They are not going to have to worry about finding a doctor who's willing to take these, the governmental insurance or the private insurance or, or Medicare or Medicaid or um, any of that. They have their own little system. Talk a little bit about that. Well, there's a, there's a
3: federal, I think most people know by now that there is a federal employees health benefits plan and it's interesting because the doctors in Maryland, for example, uh, just love um, medicare, um, because they they actually are paid more than medicare they are they are so pressured by the insurance companies that contract with the government for the federal employees' plans um, that the doctors are paid i mean we 're talking literally next to nothing um, with these plans, but of course they are high benefits and the government employees it 's interesting the doctors are recognizing this one of the comments in the um, that in one of the 200 doctors who actually wrote comments in our survey said that what he's afraid of is that we will end up with the way that the system is going, we will end up with a two-tiered system where only the powerful can get medical care that they want. And then he put in parentheses what he meant by the powerful. He said government employees. Yeah. So he actually the doctor believes that it it will only be the government employees covered by this pretty generous um employee government employees plan that will uh, will be getting the best care. So and the, and the doctors are pointing to you know have a great concern over over the two-tiered system, the potential for a two-tiered system now. I've
2: Absolutely. heard from many and people if you if you think about it in the context of brave new world um, that you know that that things aren't happening by coincidence, that there it does certainly seem as though there is this grand plan here that in fact um, has you know is essentially making doctors um, slaves to the system and making patients i mean controlling patients lives i mean what more of a um of an autocracy can we have well, and and yet the ones who are are, are in congress the ones who are, have this special kind of access to care because doctors don't have to take low amounts of money from the government um are the ones who yes who who, who are in power and will and will stay alive well, I think that
3: when you talk about, um, if it's not intentional, not intentional, uh, you know, I, I guess my sort of black helicopter side says, you know, it, it, it is, it isn't it isn't just a coincidence because um that's what i was talking about at the very beginning when i was talking about pitting doctors and patients against each other and mm-hmm. sort of working this politics of envy and so patients have been told that doctors are you know doc- all doctors are greedy and doctors are wealthy and it's just about the money for them because they've known that it's hard to work up it's it's not a very sympathetic message uh, to go out and you know for the doctors to plead poverty for example so it's what what people don't see though is that the doctors are doing the government's paperwork for example physician offices spend approximately 25 if they if they have an active medicare practice they spend 25% of their time in medicare compliance and billing and that's not medicare patients that's in compliance one of the things that the single payer government's government medicare for all Proponents always point to is they always try to tell us that Medicare is so much more efficient than are the private insurance companies, except that the numbers that come out of the government for how much we spend on Medicare are only for the actual Medicare agency. It's for their offices, etc., not the actual spending not the actual processing the claims because the insurance companies and the doctor's offices are actually doing all of that, and that's never factored in. It's essentially forcing them to, to do that work. And, again, we're back to what does that mean for patients. That means that doctors are having a hard time take, taking new Medicare patients, and they're, they're looking at restricting the services to their current Medicare patients. About three out of four doctors are looking at either completely opting out of Medicare or restricting the services to their current Medicare patients because it's it's not it, it, they literally losing money on it when you're getting $13 for an office visit and and they're not even paid anymore for consultations. So when the doctor sits down with you for 30 minutes and talks about your treatment plan. Or to fills your husband or wife in about what's going on or you discuss something. If there's no actual treatment that day, the doctor can bill absolutely nothing. Now I think that there's a key thing here though, because that kind of feeds in, you might think that feeds into the narrative that doctors are all about the money. Here's the bottom line. We also ask the doctors if they'd be willing to Treat patients for free, and more than half of them told us that they would not only be willing to treat Medicare, some Medicare Medicaid patients for free, that they prefer to treat Medicare Medicaid patients for free.
2: Well, because of all the time that they spend on the paperwork and, and all the and, and having to uh, go along with all the guidelines and, and so on. Um, but you know, I mean, obviously that that's not a sustainable system for everybody, <laughs> you know, especially because there are more patients who are fitting in under that. But but let me, um, you know, to, uh, we'll we'll give out that um, web address again at the end. But I just want to go through some of the examples, this so this results from this survey that the um, Doctor Patient Medical Association Foundation did. Uh, in May 2012, just recently, are, are amazing. You have to look through the whole survey. But, for example, it says how the current changes in the medical system affect your desire to practice medicine, and 83% of doctors said makes me think about quitting. So when you have your little uh, piece of paper from this plan that says, you know, you're now entit- entitled to um, affordable care, Go find a doctor who's going to take your little piece of paper and actually do something with it.
3: Uh, yeah, and when and when everybody talks about when the doctors talk about the changes and the system and that makes them think about quitting, some of the other elements are the fact that it's the loss of autonomy, it's the micromanagement. Um eighty five percent of the doctors say that the patient physician relationship is absolutely in a tailspin. That means that they are painfully aware that we, as patients, have lost control, and they, as doctors, you as doctors, Dr. Carroll, have lost control over what goes on in that doctor patient relationship so that's those those are the types of things also given the um, um, it 's not just about the insur the um, government it 's also the insurance companies um, they give and, and it's interesting because a, one out of three doctors is even hesitant to voice any concern over healthcare policy or healthcare reform because they're fear, they fear retaliation from either their colleagues or their administrators or the hospitals where they practice.
2: Yes, which is really, uh, you know, it's which is really very sad. I guess um if people did a personality test of doctors <laughs> from from the way that we've been just uh allowing these things, these changes to happen, or too many of us have been allowing these changes to happen. Um, it I wouldn't go very high in the uh aggressive or maverick column. <laughs> um, well, but, you well know, you're you're there... you're
3: trained to do the right thing, not to be renegades, so as, as physicians in medical school.
2: <laughs> yes, we, we kind of uh, believed that everything was going to be, you know, that, that it would stay in this more positive kind of way of thinking. Well, we, ha- we hear another, more music, meaning we need to take another break. The time is going really quickly. This is such important stuff. We're both trying to get out um, some of the key elements here, but you have to find out about this. Uh, my guest is Catherine Serk. She's the co-founder and chair of the Doctor-Patient Medical Association. We're talking about what the Supreme Court isn't talking about. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
4: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah!
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at one 472 5788 Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking about the Supreme Court decision about health care reform. My guest is Catherine Sirks. She's the co-founder and chair of the Doctor-Patient medical association will give you uh, the website before the end of the show where you can find some more survey results the numbers are astounding i was just giving you some some highlights um, one thing that i want to throw in there as a psychiatrist is uh, well my first reaction when i heard that the that it had gone through past the supreme court i, I must say I, I really went into shock i didn't think um, that it was going to go through so blindly i mean so intact and um my comment was the justices need their head examined, but there's no money to pay for it. And then, aha, yes, there is. For them, there is. Of course, they should have have gotten their head examined before they voted. I think psychiatrists should have volunteered um, to help them before they voted on this. But I, I just want to talk a little bit about about the psychology of doctors and what this this whole uh, leading up to this, and certainly now what this is doing to doctors psychologically, and of course that's important for you to to know because um, because you know this is the the mental state of your doctor is obviously going to be affecting your care when you go into his office or he gets called into the hospital to see you. Um, when doc- I, I supervise, um, I, I treat and supervise. Medical students and psychiatric residents at UCLA and uh, also at Cedars, um, and so I know what uh, down through the years what the feelings of these medical students and psychiatric residents are, and you know they they started out so um, impassioned, so dedicated to helping people, and it's not that they're not anymore. But they have gotten demoralized and depressed and disillusioned um, because of all of the changes in medicine. This is not what they picked going to medical school for. This is not what they had in mind when they made all the sacrifices, all the hours of studying instead of partying and all the money uh being saved, you know, by their families, by themselves, all the loans they take out, um, all the just... Just all the you know, most people who could who go to medical school could have had could have made lots of other choices, and yet they chose a career that was essentially geared towards helping people, and um, and so now it, it's like a real betrayal. I was mentioning at the beginning the betrayal of the AMA. It's a betrayal in in so many senses of the word, and. Um, it's just really i mean that's why this this organization that Catherine um is the co-founder and chair of uh, is so important because and and any ways that people listening to this patients doctors um can start you know groups in their own where they are locally as well because um this this really you know thing of the tide has got to turn back um sure where they're were there was a the system perfect before? Absolutely not, but it was certainly better <laughs> than what we are headed for. There's no question of that. I actually trained at uh, I went to medical school in Belgium, and um, the University of Louvain in in Belgium, and um, and I've lived for in in London and I've lived in Paris, and uh, so I've seen medical care in in various places in the world. And, um, you know, where we're, this, I mean, certainly the medical school was great. It was very rigorous, especially in French. <laughs> but, um, but you know, places like London, for example, where, where care is essentially rationed, where you have to wait for months to get an appointment with a doctor. Um, it, it's been, it started to happen here already, and it's only going to get worse and we really have to do something, you know, people cannot be complacent anymore and just figure it's going to work itself out some way because when you need that care um, and, and all of a sudden you're realizing what this bill really means, this law really means, then all of a sudden you're going to wake up and realize, oh, wait a second, maybe I should have gotten involved and, and done something about it. So this might be a good time, Catherine, for you to talk about what, your organization does and how people can get involved with it. Okay, thank you but let me let me add a
3: couple of things to that and then then sure. I'll do that. I I just got it because I did just get a um, I got a Facebook post just just yesterday from a resident who said he absolutely loves clinical medicine and treating patients, but he said he's beside himself with the bureaucracy involved in the U.S. and is now looking at his options um, for a career abroad. So he's Mm. thinking of taking his training and going to another country with it where he doesn't have the micromanagement. Um, So that's that's what's happening to the psychology of the doctors. We are looking at doctors bailing out. What we really have is, a I call it a disaster in slow motion um as Various parts of the healthcare law are implemented. We will see more and more doctors, um, leaving. There are actually companies now that do very expensive seminars for doctors on how to do something other than being a doctor. Yes, and, yes. and they, one of them, I looked at one of them, and they have a former ER doctor who now calls himself a master Sherpa coach. And he's out <laughs> coaching doctors to move on. So, we, we, yes, doctors are very frustrated, they, and they are just begging begging to get back to medicine that's the frustrating part of all this is that we are not letting doctors actually do doctoring anymore and the comments the comments range from you know saying I'm not a provider for the government I'm a doctor I want to take care of my patients so and the other thing I'd like to point out is that just because the Supreme Court has declared that this law is constitutional it doesn't mean that it's necessarily good policy and it still can be repealed and i don't want to get too much into the political discussion but if you're not crazy about the the law going into effect then one of the things that you can do is have a little discussion with your member of congress and 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 express your opinion if it's if you believe that it should be repealed and yeah. even though a lot of most of the Democrats voted for this bill, um, a lot of those same Democrats are have very very close tight races this year because of their vote on this bill, and yeah. they are much more open to assessing reassessing their position on it. So there's a lot of hope um, for for repeal, and it just depends on on what happens in the elections. So. This can still yes. we can still kill the whole thing and start over and look at something that's really going to put patients and doctors in control. So that's one of the things that people can do. Um, another thing that they can do is talk to their state legislators and and ask the state legislators not to implement the state exchanges, the insurance exchanges that are a central part of it, um, because the state the states have to kind of stand up to the federal government as well and say that they're not going to. To comply, it's it's optional, but but again, the government is the federal government is putting a great deal of pressure on the states to participate in these in the insurance exchanges. So that's another thing they can do. And I would also recommend that patients look for doctors who are doing patient doctor direct practices. Who and it's not just for for the wealthy with, you know, with concierge medicine, um, doctors who are charging as little as $35 for office visits once they get rid of all that paperwork. And you can still turn around and file an insurance claim with your insurance company, just that you file the insurance claim yourself instead of the doctor spending his time filing your insurance claim for you. You know, that's speak about an inefficient use of our resources, we're using some very highly skilled people to do our paperwork for us. Yes, yes, absolutely. Those are some of the things that people
2: people can do. Okay, and tell us about um, doctorsandpatients.org.
3: And, of course, I would love it if everybody came and joined doctorsandpatients.org because we are working to give patients the tools to become empowered patients and really take charge. We have webcasts and webinars on patient power, and we talk about everything from how to – Talk to your doctor and prepare for an office visit and what questions to ask when you're sitting there in your paper gown to um, how to get the best deal on prescriptions. And we have we have um, discounts on labs and drugs and all the things that nobody's nobody's helping out and try, trying to get price transparency. So if they join, um, we're trying to walk the walk
2: and give you the tools. Okay, great. <laughs> Excuse me, that's doctors and patients dot org. Go to there. Not only um, will you find all of those wonderful things, but you'll also find the survey and doctors' comments. And it's really an eye opener. And the reason why I and thank you so much for coming on the show, Catherine, because uh, I really want to get all of you to be informed. I, once you're informed about all these things, the things that we have highlighted today, um, then you will know that this has got this law has got to be repealed. It's not about politics. It's about your, your life, and it's about the life of your loved ones. So, Katherine Serks, co-founder and chair of the Doctor Patient Medical Association. The website, again, is doctorsandpatients.org. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.